Well, uh, good morning. It's uh, great to be with you as always. Uh, whether you're here uh, with us this morning or you're uh, tuning in, joining us through our uh, online uh, broadcast, uh, either way, it's good to be able to be together in this way and, and, and worship together. Uh, and this morning, we're going to uh, turn to the Bible as we do each week, as we believe it is God's Word uh, to us, and we come with an expectation that He will uh, speak relevantly uh, into our lives this morning. And, and this morning, as we come to God's Word, we're coming to week two in a, a three-week series on the book of Job. Uh, and last week, we looked at the opening two chapters, and this morning, I'm going to take us through uh, chapters 3 uh, to 37. Yes, that's uh, 34 uh, whole chapters. Uh, now, worry not, I'm not going to read uh, the whole thing, as I'm sure uh, you, some of you will be relieved to hear, uh, but I'm going to, as we go through, pull out some key verses along the way in, so, in, in order that we can see what they have to teach us. Uh, because the whole book of Job, all 42 chapters, really confront uh, head-on the whole issue of suffering. It asks and then seeks to answer the seemingly universal human question of why God allows so much pain and suffering in the world. Now the book begins in the opening two chapters by introducing us to this man uh, named Job, who is described as blameless and upright, a man who feared God and turned away from evil. And we also discovered that God had prospered Job greatly, that he had prospered him with wealth, uh, with family, and with health. But we soon discover, though, through a number of exchanges that take place in the council room of heaven that we're privy to and Job is not, that God grants Satan permission to go and test and afflict Job. And so we read how the blessings of God are stripped away from Job one by one. First, his vast herds of sheep and camels, oxen and donkeys are taken away from him. And then disaster strikes and all ten of his children are tragically killed. And then as if that weren't enough, in the midst of such profound loss, his body is afflicted with, with, with excruciating sores. Now, now, while there's a certain uniqueness to the suffering uh, that Job experienced, he's also held up as someone that we might, with whom we might identify. For surely as we live and breathe, suffering comes to all of us. I mean, I'm sure I don't need to convince any of, uh, of, any of you that. Uh, most, if not all of us, have known uh, at some point the, the bitter taste of deep pain and, and suffering. Some of us may even be tasting the bitterness of it right now in our lives. Maybe you live alone, you live on your own, and you feel the, the deep loneliness and disconnection that, 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 that sometimes feel has been in, intensified uh, during this time, this period of lockdown. Or perhaps you've lost your job or you've put, been put on extended furlough and it's been a real struggle just to, just to make ends meet. For some, maybe we've lost loved ones family members, friends during this season of pandemic. And, and, and the suffering, the pain of this season has, has caused it to be especially bitter and very real. 
So suffering and pain come to all of us. 1 Peter 4 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange is happening to you. And although Peter in the immediate context is speaking about persecution, surely this could equally apply to all the suffering that we endure, can it? That we shouldn't be surprised by it. Just by being human, we will suffer. And the question that we ask, and often even unbelievers ask to kind of prove to us that there isn't a God, is this. How can a God of love really exist and allow suffering to happen? And it's a really important question which gets addressed in the book of Job, although it doesn't get fully answered. And before we dip into it, we're just going to look at three broad reasons why we suffer. And the first is this. We suffer because of our own choices. I recently uh, came across a picture montage of the reasons why women live longer than men. And it's quite humorous. And for you on, on, our online folks, the picture is now going to come up for you online. Suffice it to say, the pictures have something to do with ladders, motorcycles, and power tools. And it's pretty much a, a montage of stupidity at its finest. The point being is, if you put yourself in compromising positions enough, the likelihood is that you're, it's going to end in tears. It's the old age-old uh, principle of cause and effect. You reap what you sow. That's exactly what it says in Galatians 6. A man reaps what he sows. In other words, there are consequences to our actions. And sometimes when we do something really foolish and stupid, we experience the consequences and we have to go through a period of suffering because of what we, what we, what we have done. Or maybe because something that has been done to us. It's basically the human reason behind suffering. Now the second broad reason why we suffer is because God allows it or takes us through it in order to grow and develop us. So, for example, Jesus, after he was baptized, was led into the wilderness in order to battle with Satan for 40 days and 40 nights. Now, ultimately, Satan is a defeated foe, and there's a limit to the extent to which he can cause damage because God is ultimately in control. But sometimes, God does allow that to happen. Or it might be that God himself intentionally takes us through a period of suffering. So we see that with the disciples, don't we? After they have this, uh, this amazing day where they've seen 5,000 people fed with bread and fish and they get to the edge of the lake and the evening's drawing, drawing, drawing in and, and they're feeling exhilarated and exhausted. And, and what God does is he essentially makes them get into a boat. That's what it says. He makes them get into the boat and he sends them into a storm. And they get taken into a storm in order to learn how to trust him better. And that's what God sometimes does. He sometimes takes us through those times. Sometimes it's a matter of disciplining us. In Hebrews 12, it says, Our Heavenly Father disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Someone once said that the pain that God causes is like the surgeon's knife and not like the executioner's whip. 
And God may want to speak to some of us today who, who have this misconception of an ogre of a God who is full of wrath and who punishes us and beats us down every time we do something wrong. Actually, God is a God of love and of grace. And the reason that we are disciplined or go through times of suffering is because he loves us and he wants us to grow. Now, the third broad area of suffering is this, that we suffer for no obvious reason. Now, this is the category of suffering that we're looking at when we're dealing with the book of Job. It's also the category of famines or natural disasters of the 2004 tsunami that impacted 16 nations and and killed over a quarter million people. Never mind all of the people who lost their livelihoods and homes. It's of the the order of the explosion that happened in Beirut a number of months ago where suddenly out of the blue, bam, people's homes were destroyed and people's lives were taken. And perhaps it's something a bit more personal. It could be the the cancer that comes to little children. Or perhaps a a sudden death of someone from a, a freak accident that you weren't expecting. And it's at those moments where we cry out in pain and anguish, God, why? Why is this happening? Why don't you intervene? I I why don't you come and do something? And in Job's case, although he was a man who feared God and turned away from evil, who was upright and blameless, that's not to say, uh, first of all, that he never sinned or that he was perfect, but compared to his contemporaries, he, he, he was a virtuous man, and yet in one foul swoop, he loses his livelihood as his animals are taken away. He loses all of his children as their home is destroyed by a windstorm. Ten of them. Imagine that. Imagine losing all of your children. And then on top of that, he gets this horrible, horrible skin disease. And in a very short space of time, it's all gone. And when we try to make sense of these seemingly meaningless moments of suffering, whether it's ours or Job's, we generally make a hash of it. Because because the way we like to do it is we like everything neat and tidy and squared away. We like easy answers to difficult questions. We want it all to, to, to set out uh, like a nice, a neat formula so that, that it kind of helps us so that we can go, oh, okay, I understand. But actually, suffering is often not like that, and we need to be honest about that. And it's true to say of Job's uh, so-called three comforters who we read about in the closing verses of chapter 2, that they come and they want to square things away. They want to make things all neat and tidy. We read about them. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place. Eliphaz, the Temanite, the Bildad, the Shuite, the Zophar, the uh, Namathite, they made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept, they, and they tore their clothes and sprinkled dust on their heads towards heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. You know, these three friends get a lot of bad press, and much of it's well-deserved. But Eliphaz, Bildad, and Bildad and, and Zophar are not all bad. 
I mean, they dropped everything and made significant journeys to be there for Job in his hour of need. And when they see their friends head shaved and, 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 and they catch the first sight of the dreadful sores on his skin, disfiguring him almost beyond recognition, they're so devastated for him that they weep without, with, with all the loud lamenting of a Middle Eastern funeral. They identify with Job and his suffering by, by tearing their own clothes and getting down in the dust with him. I mean, they, de they demonstrate a remarkable commitment to their friend by sitting with him for seven days and seven nights without speaking a word. Now in chapter 3, Job ends his seven days of silence by opening his mouth and he begins to curse. Now, it isn't the Lord that he curses, but he, he directs some very bitter language at the day he was born. He calls for his birthday to be struck from the calendar. He wishes he had never been born. He wishes that he had been stillborn, for then at least he would be lying dead in the grave rather instead of suffering with the living. And Job's frequent talk about darkness in these verses reflect how much he feels in the dark about God's actions all around him. He, his property is gone, his children are gone, his health are gone, and so he fears that, that, that gone has, God has gone and left him too. Yeah, Job's initial reaction to the disaster, which we looked at last week, was to worship the Lord. But as the days roll on without deliverance, he, be, he begins to conclude that the Lord must have abandoned him. And so he goes on in his lament in chapter 3, seeking relief from all his suffering. He begins with a wish to find rest in death in verse 13. And he ends with, with the lament that there's no rest for the living in verse 26. And the verses in between describe a man who is anguished and suicidal. What I fear, he says, what I fear has come, come upon me. And what I dreaded has happened to me, he cries. Job's worst fears have been realized, and it seems that all he's left with is a nagging wife and three false friends. Now, what are we to make of this? How, how can the man who trusted God so totally in chapters 1 and 2 have plummeted so quickly into such terrible despair? Well, if we're asking such a question, then praise God, because it means that, that, that we've not yet suffered firsthand real grief and tragedy. Because anyone who, can who has can testify that the human heart acts like a yo-yo. You know, one day you're feeling full of faith, and the next day you're unable to get out of bed for a, you know, a debilitating sense of, of bleak despair. But the writer of Job records his honest lament to help us trust that God is able to sustain our hearts on both good days and the bad. Job here is truly in the dark. He knows nothing of the exchanges between God and Satan that shed light on these events for us in chapters 1 and 2. Satan has asked back in chapter 1, have you not put a hedge around Job and his household and everything he has? And, and from the bottom of his pit of depression, Job imagines that the Lord has surrounded him with barbed wire and misery. But from the perspective of heaven, however, the Lord has surrounded Job with his love and his protection. 
Even in sickness and pain, the Lord has forbidden Satan from laying a finger on this man's life. And in fact, Job will not find his final respite in death, but in the glorious resurrection when God vindicates him. And indeed, one day, many years later, Jesus would hang from a cruel cross in deep darkness. And he would cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He would walk in Job's footsteps to deliver him and to deliver you and me. He would plumb the depths of human sorrow so that even when our days feel the darkest, he is able to lead us out into the light of a new day. So, so listen, if you feel hedged in by tragedy, God calls you to look up to the righteous one who died and rose again. He, he reassures us that even our dark days, even in those days, he is hedging us in with his protection. Now, if Job's three friends had a theme song, then it would definitely be Alison Krauss's song, You Say It Best When You Say Nothing At All. I mean, while they simply sit with him, they provide him a small shred of comfort. But the moment they begin to open their mouths, they betray what they're really thinking, and they offer him no better comfort than his wife does. They make, it, they make him feel lonelier in their company than he was before they arrived. We, we click, quickly do discover that they really do say it best when they say nothing at all. And actually, that's often the best thing that we can do as well. When someone goes through a traumatic event, it's just to sit with them, just to be with them in their suffering rather than giving them answers. But unfortunately, they can't resist the urge and they go on and they do give these answers and they try to explain things away. Now, Eliphaz is likely the oldest of Job's uh, friends since he speaks first in each of the cycles of dialogue that take place. And he tends to speak as the voice of experience. He claims to have tested out his formula through many years of experience. He says, consider now who that was innocent ever perished or where were the upright ever cut off. In other words, Job, upright people don't go through suffering. So therefore, you must have done something wrong in order to be experiencing this, this suffering. As I've observed, he says, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. In other words, you reap what you sow. And so Job, you are reaping what you have sown. In other words, God never afflicts anybody who consistently does what is right. And God never prospers anyone who consistently does evil. Now listen, before we're too quick to rush in and criticize Eliphaz for being too simplistic, let's face up to the fact that his formula still pretty much lies at the heart of Western spirituality today. I mean, he is a preacher of karma. You know, what goes around comes around. Do good to others and good things will happen to you. Do bad to others and, and don't be surprised when it catches up to you. And quite frankly, listen, since most of us see ourselves as good people, this is the very formula that makes us rage against God for not sheltering our own lives from suffering. And, and, and it's also the formula that makes us angry with God because he seems to let people get away with evil scot-free. 
It's the formula that dominates the plot lines of our literature and movies. It's what makes uh, Captain Von Trapp and Maria uh, celebrate their love for each other in the sound of music by singing, nothing can come from nothing. So somewhere in our childhood, our youth, we must have done something good. But there's just one problem with this formula that is preached by Eliphaz and Julie Andrews. And that's the experience of Job is meant to show that it simply isn't true. Just as I've said, if we act foolishly, we will more than likely suffer. If we drive our cars double the speed limit, we're more likely to crash them. If we gossip about uh, behind people's backs, we're more likely to lose our friends. But the book of Job insists that bad things do happen to good people and that good things do happen to bad people. Cancer does seem to strike indiscriminately. Good people do seem to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Evil does appear to prosper. And all that Eliphaz shows us is that the world really has no answers when it comes to the biggest question of them all, which is why does God allow suffering? Now, Bildad appears to have been the second oldest of the three friends since he speaks after Eliphaz. But unlike Eliphaz, who is forever boasting of his many years of life experience, Bildad is forever harping about the need to look back to the the wise men of previous generations. He says, ask the former generations and find out what their ancestors learned, for we were born only yesterday and know nothing. He He claims that answering the big questions such as why does God allow suffering is just too difficult for us because we just live such short lives. But if we would just stand back and stand on the shoulder of the giants of the past, then we can give ourselves a longer view. And those giants will tell us two things for certain. Plants without water always wither and die under the hot sun. And people without virtue always wither and die under God's judgment. Now, the strength of Bildad's formula is is that it's generally true that God punishes sinful people by afflicting them with suffering. I mean, the Old Testament is full of examples of this, and the New Testament has several examples as well. But the weakness of Bildad's formula is that the Bible also insists that God doesn't always punish sinful people in this way. And that he does sometimes, like godly people, go through long periods of suffering for a very different reason. Eliphaz says experience, and Bildad says tradition. But if you'll notice and look carefully, their two formulas are essentially the same. Bildad simply trots out the same old answer that Eliphaz gave earlier. He just rehashes it. Now, of course, his ancestors were right to say that God doesn't reject one who is blameless or strengthen the hands of evildoers. But that, that isn't an answer to our question. It's merely a restatement of the, question, of the problem. I mean, Job is blameless, yet it looks as though the Lord has rejected him. And the Sabaean and Chaldean raiders are evildoers. And yet it looks as though the Lord has strengthened their hands. The truth is... The wisdom of the ages isn't wise enough. We need something better than the same old answers. 
And that's exactly what the Lord Jesus gives in, the, in, in chapter 9 of John's gospel. When on one occasion, the disciples spot a, a beggar by the side of the road who was born blind. And therefore, they bring Bildad's formula and ask Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? But Jesus lifts their gaze to see that something bigger is happening in this man's life. As it was happening in the life of Job, he replied, Neither this man nor his parents sin, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. In other words, Jesus calls us to lift our eyes to see beyond the pot-bound thinking of traditional formulaic answers. He says that sometimes God allows good people to suffer temporary losses in order to grant them something far, of far greater value than mere happiness in the end. Now, Zophar appears to be the youngest of Job's three friends from the fact that he speaks last. And whereas Eliphaz spoke from experience of Bildad, uh, spoke for tradition, Zophar claims to be the voice of logical reasoning. He's also the most offensive and direct. Uh, he accuses Job of, of spouting too much idle talk. He accuses of, of Job of being so steeped in evil that he says, God has even forgotten some of your sin. And, and Zophar's point here seems to be that God isn't unfair to cause Job to suffer, that Job is actually getting less than he deserves. He say, says that Job is right to fear to stand in the courtroom of heaven. He challenges Job to repent. It seems only reasonable to, jo, to Zophar that, that Job's suffering is due to a stubborn refusal, of, that he has a stubborn refusal to come clean with God about his sin. Zophar approaches the problem of suffering a bit differently from Eliphaz and Bildad, but he, he too arrives at the same old worn answers uses logical reasoning in the same way that his friends used experience and tradition to avoid having to think too hard about the problem. Reasoning that if Job is suffering, then it must mean that Job is sinning. And this is essentially what they say to Job for numerous chapters. Speech after speech after speech. They go round and round and round. The bulk of the book is given to this, to, to this explanation to Job. You have done something wrong and you, you must have done something wrong to be suffering like this. And yet despite their constant efforts to, to convince him of this, Job maintains his claim to to innocence right through the book. In, in chapter 31, verse 5, it says the following, I have walked, if I have walked in falsehood or my foot has hurried after deceit, let God weigh me in a just balance and he will know that I am blameless. And so a large part of what Job does in this book is to tell both his friends and God that he is innocent. And in so doing, he's left confused and bereft. He's thinking, if, if I am blameless. Why is this happening to me? And so he swings from trusting God in his suffering to crying out angrily to God. In verse 21 of chapter 1, it says that straight after his children have perished, he worships God and declares, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in chapter 2, verse 10, he declares to his wife, shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? 
And Job's response is not only insightful, but it's truly miraculous. For, for having experienced such searing loss, he is able to say, blessed be the name of the Lord. And he also recognized that he doesn't deserve the, the good gifts that God has given him. He sees that even in the moment. And yet he also swings dramatically to the point where his emotions overwhelms him and he rails against God. We see this in chapter 7 where he says the following, Therefore I will not keep silent. I will speak out in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. When I think my bed will comfort me and my couch will ease my complaint, even then you frighten me with dreams and terrify me with visions. And then in verse 20, we read Job says, why have you made me your target? Let me encourage you, friends, that trusting in God doesn't mean stoically putting up with your pain, just stiff upper lift, just gritting your teeth and getting on with it and, and while offering pious platitudes and niceties to God. Oh God, I love you. You're, you're so wonderful. Aren't you lovely? And then privately just trying to, to cope with your pain. Actually, no, no, no. God wants to involve us. Real trust involves being honest and vulnerable with God. Getting angry with him at times. Voicing how you feel. Sometimes getting mad and, and, and really saying to God, God, I can't do this. I don't understand. Why are you letting this happen to me? God has made us for real relationship with him. He, simply, he doesn't simply want a bunch of robots who, who just do what he asks without emotion, but he wants people who genuinely wrestle with him because only then do we have true relationship with God. I mean, when you experience a really tough season in life, whatever that may look like for you, you know, when it just feels as though your world is falling apart, when you feel like your world has disappeared, there, there be, may be moments when you just rail, just shout to God, just cry to God, why are you letting this happen to me? What is going on? But you know, the fact is that that actually can be good. It can be better than the alternative that we often fall into sometimes because the alternative sometimes is what? What do we do? Well, what we do many times is we try to bury what is going on and we try to numb our pain somewhere else. You know, we, we delve into Netflix or whatever it is. You know, just, just distractions, entertainment, work, substances, what, whatever it might be. And we just try to numb ourselves so that we, we don't bring our emotions to God. And that is the mistake that we often make, which what it does, it just causes us to remain stuck. But Job doesn't do that. You'll, you'll notice if, if, if you take the opportunity to read through the whole book of Job on your own, that not once does, do, did, his, did Job's friends offer to pray for Job. And not once do Job's friends address God. They don't do that. But you will notice that so, so many times God, Job comes before God and addresses God and speaks to God and brings everything to God. Job never stops praying. He complains, but he complains to God. He screams and yells, but he screams and yells to God in, in God's presence. No matter how much agony he's in, he continues to address God. And Job's doggedness seeking the face and presence of God means that suffering did not drive him away, but it brought him nearer to God. 
And the crux of the book of Job is this. That right early on, Satan, when speaking to God, says this. He says in verse 9 of chapter 1, does Job fear God for no reason? In other words, surely the reason he fears and obeys you, God, is because you have given him all these nice things, a nice house, this big family, all these possessions. Surely that's the reason that he loves you and fears you. If, if you were to take all of those things away, surely he would end up cursing you to your face. But we learn as we journey through Job that he doesn't do that. He keeps coming before God and he keeps drawing nearer and closer to him and honoring him even in his anger and anguish. He still does it. In chapter 9, verse 4, Job utters this. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. In chapter 12, 13, he declares, With God are wisdom and might. He has counsel and understanding. Ultimately, Job realizes he needs to be near to God because God is all wisdom and knowledge and understanding. Although Job realizes that he will never know what God is doing in the darkness, he takes solace in the fact that he knows the God who knows. In chapter 16 and 19, after two of Job's most gut-wrenchingly honest and despairing rants to God, we read the following. He says in, in Verse 19 of chapter 16, even now my witness is in heaven, my advocate is on high, my intercessor is my friend as my eyes pour out tears to God. On behalf of a man, he pleads with God as one pleads for, for a friend. And then in Job 19, verses 25 to 27, we read the following, for I know that my Redeemer lives. And that in the end, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. Listen, Job was around hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus, and yet in his moments of pain and suffering, every once in a while, he catches a glimpse of this one who is to come, of this redeemer who would rescue humanity, of this advocate who stands at the right hand of the Father, pleading and interceding on our behalf. And, and this gives him solace of comfort, knowing that he knows the God who knows. And so we also can take comfort, we who live hundreds and hundreds of years after Christ and have the benefit of being able to look back on what Jesus did and read about it in the New Testament and in the Gospels, this man who came and lived a sinless life, who went willingly to the cross to die, who took our sin and our punishment upon himself and who overcame the grave and death and rose again victorious so that we who put our faith and trust in him can know relationship restored and life eternal. And yet our pain still continues. And in, and in this moment, we have a choice. We can continue to search and look for reasons why we are suffering and in the end become bitter and twisted or instead we can accept that we will never know the reason why we sometimes suffer and put our trust instead in him, the one who knows. And so the way we should respond is by including God in our suffering. Uh, he went through 
the aloneness of Gethsemane and Calvary so that, that, that we do not need to be alone. He, he, he wants to be with us in it. He wants to draw us in. If you are suffering, do not suffer alone. Come to the one who says, I am the one who has laid this path before you. I'm the one who has suffered and knows what it's like. Come to me, rest with me, and I will take you out of this pain at the right time. Many of you know the remarkable story of, of Corey Ten Boom uh, during the Second World War. She, along with her family, were, was imprisoned in, the, in one of the Nazi concentration camps, and she experienced the, the deep anguish and agony of losing her sister. And she could have become bitter and just spent her life wondering why and getting mad at God. But instead she didn't. She, she knew the one who knew. And she realized that actually when you have a tapestry, most of the time it's like we're looking at the underside of the tapestry that's a mess. But God is actually, he sees the true picture. And so she had a, a years of, of fruitful ministry thereafter where, where she went around talking about the, the, this message of hope and, and, and that, that we're to trust God in our suffering and he can even enable us to forgive those who have done wrong to us. And in the course of her talk, she would often read this poem. It's called The Weaver. Some of you are familiar with it. And I'm going to finish uh, this morning by reading it to us now. My life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the colors he weaveth steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper, and I the underside. Nor till the loom is silent and the shuttle ceases to fly will God unroll the canvas and re reveal the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Job. We thank you for the faith that you granted this faithful servant long ago. We thank you that the same grace that he knew and lived in is the same grace that you have given to us, but even more so has it been revealed to us through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we acknowledge that this life is often full of suffering. We live with the vestiges of a broken, fallen world. We live with sorrow. We live with pain. And yet we want to be uh, people who respond well in the midst of it. In that sense, we want to be Job-like, and we need your grace to, be, uh, to respond as such. We want to be people of faith in the midst of suffering. We want th that which we face in this life that's often given to us in your perfect economy in a way that we do not understand, but we want to be those who can trust you in it, trust that you are uh, perfecting and shaping us into the likeness of the Lord Jesus through it. And so may the sufferings that we experience and the sufferings uh, we endure, may they not lead us to bitterness. May they not lead us uh, away from you, but may they draw us ever more and more and deeper and deeper into re deep relationship with you. It's our longing, it's our prayer, and our hope as we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.